Welcome to the 902 Podcast, the official podcast of the Lancaster County Sheriff's Office in Lincoln, Nebraska. I'm Captain John Vick, and I want to thank you for listening. This podcast will give you an inside look at LSO with topics and guests to discuss public safety issues impacting Lancaster County. Be sure to subscribe for highlights on news, cases, and the people working for you at LSO. You can also follow us across social media at LSO Nebraska on Facebook, X, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube. Welcome to the 902 podcast. We're here on a, we'll call it Federal Friday. Um, we were joking about that before we went on, but uh, we've got a very special guest from the Omaha FBI field office. Gene Cowell is here, and Gene, you are the special agent in charge of the Omaha field office. Is that, do I have that right? You have it right. Super. Well, we're very excited to have you here joining us on the 902 podcast today. Uh, Sheriff Wagner, Chief Deputy Houchin here as usual. Thanks for being here, guys. Great Good to be here. Yeah, we're... Uh, we're going to jump into all things about the FBI and the Omaha field office in a little bit. But before we do that, Gene, we want to give our listeners a chance to get to know you a little bit. So where are you from? How, how did you get to, to be where you're at um, in law enforcement, but then specifically at the FBI today? Sure. Happy to go over my background a little bit. And thanks again for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. Uh, you know, the most important tool the FBI has is our partnerships. And our partnership with your department and departments across Nebraska and Iowa really fundamental to our mission. So excited to be here and talk with you, talk with your listeners. So I can tell you about myself. I'm not from Nebraska, but I got here as soon as I could. Perfect. Uh, but I, I, We're glad I you're here. I yeah. wondered who you made mad. That's yeah. Yeah. How do you get sent here? Well, it's really interesting. You know, people ask that, but for the most part, people in the FBI here, they want to be here. Uh, it's actually a very desirable office. Either people grew up in the area in the Midwest and know it, or they don't, and more like my case, sort of researched it and realized, you know, this is a great place to live, a great place to raise a family. So for me, what happened was the job opened, and uh, my wife and I looked into it, and we thought this would be a wonderful place for us, uh, and I expressed interest, and uh, a little while later, Director Ray called and said, Gene, you're going to Omaha. So we chose it very deliberately. We just thought it would be a great community, and uh, it's proven to be fantastic for our family. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, it's Back up a little bit. Was was the FBI always something that uh, that was on your list, or something that you wanted to do, or how how did you come across the FBI originally? That's a great question. You know, for many of my colleagues, the FBI uh, it was like a lifelong goal of theirs, something they always aspired to. For me, it wasn't. Uh, I grew up mostly in Alabama. I went to college, University of Virginia. Then I actually went to law school up in New York at uh, New York University School of Law. And my goal was always to be a prosecutor. Oh. That always is what interested me. And so during my time in law school, I did a clinic at the New York County District Attorney's Office mm -hmm. for the, the prosecutors in New York City. And I loved it. Like, I loved the tempo. I loved working with victims, working with the police department. And I applied for that job and lucky enough to get it. So I spent about three and a half years at the Manhattan District Attorney's Office prosecuting everything from street crime, a violent crime, drug offenses, domestic violence, sex crimes. Uh, and it was a wonderful, it was a wonderful job, but what I found I wanted was to be more on the front end. Mm -hmm. I wanted to help build the investigations. I wanted to help identify not just the person I was prosecuting, but who else is involved, work my way up the network. And, um, and also, uh, honestly, I was also looking for a job where, you know, when the bell rings and there's a critical incident or an emergency, you know, I'm one of the people whose job is to run towards that. Right. And, um, so I started looking around, uh, at the police department. And, and then I heard about the FBI, and I thought, well, that sounds interesting. So 
I put in an application. They called me back for an interview, asked me to do some push-ups, and then um, <laughs> I found myself down, uh, you know, in Quantico, Virginia, at yeah. our academy for 16 weeks. Yeah. When was that? That was I graduated the academy 2005. So, for those that that maybe aren't completely familiar with the the structure of the FBI, what is a what does a special agent in charge do, and and what what is your what's your role? Sure. So the FBI has 56 main field offices. So you can think of the major cities in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Omaha, Denver, Atlanta, Detroit, L.A., uh, San Francisco. And then each one of those has a certain territory. So here from our Omaha field office, we oversee all FBI investigations across Iowa and Nebraska. And then we have resident agencies throughout. So in Nebraska, it's Lincoln, Grand Island, and North Platte. And then in Iowa... Uh, it's Cedar Rapids, Quad Cities, Waterloo, Des Moines, and Sioux City. Okay. Uh, and from there, we kind of handle the full span of, of everything we cover. Interestingly enough, you know, the FBI also has a very robust uh, overseas footprint, mm-hmm. which I didn't know. When I joined, I joined the FBI. I wanted to go after gangs, organized crime, public corruption in the U.S. And I found myself traveling around the world to, to Iraq, Afghanistan, Belgium, mm-hmm. Spain, El Salvador, uh, just many different places, India, in furtherance of the FBI's both criminal mission and counterterrorism mission. Yeah, and your career certainly spanned a, a very active time as far as kind of a wartime footprint um, for the United States with Iraq, Afghanistan. Um, so just a lot of a lot of threats with the global war on terrorism that uh, I'm, I'm sure probably even more so than uh, you know pre 9-11 um, type of agency. Certainly they had things overseas, but uh, certainly an active time for you and the FBI. Yeah, didn't they, like, uh, after 9-11, you know, the emphasis on what the FBI was concentrating on kind of changed at that point in time. Is that correct? There definitely was a shift. Uh, you know, I would say, you know, the FBI recognized, I think, starting after World War II, that we have to have a robust overseas footprint, right? Mm-hmm. If we're going to catch child predators, if we're going to stop drug trafficking, if we're going to catch fugitives... We can't just sort of wait at our border. Right. And over time, that morphed into counterintelligence issues and counterterrorism. And of course, after 9-11, did cause quite a change in the FBI. I would say we always focused on terrorism, but we began a major shift into focusing as well on our sort of intel- the intelligence component of what we do. Mm-hmm. We've always been law enforcement. We've always worked with our partners uh, to arrest criminals, but began sort of a shift to match that focus with... Uh, sort of identifying threats, mitigating threats, uh, preventing threats before they occur. Well, didn't about that time they changed the laws to where if any American citizen was a victim of a crime in a foreign country, the FBI investigated it? Is that correct? That's exactly right. So if if an American citizen, as you said, is a victim of a crime, a violent crime, act of terrorism, you know, we have jurisdiction to investigate. So Mm -hmm. whether it's a kidnapping in Mexico, whether it's a terrorism attack in Africa, you know, if a U.S. citizen is involved, we'll investigate. And that's actually part of the work I did in Afghanistan was I'd respond to any bombing involving U.S. citizen, whether uh, State Department, Department of Defense, the military. Oh, really? Even the military? Even military. Okay. Wow. Uh, uh, and we would try to respond to the ones that we could, uh, especially in the more urban areas, and collect evidence, work with the local departments, both uh, the local Afghanistan departments were collecting evidence, but also with... Uh, sort of all the U.S. government components mm-hmm. try to attribute where the attack came from and then however we can impose some sort of risk and consequences on the people who did it. How much resistance did you get from some of these 
outside countries, agencies and things. Was it was that it always a fight on trying to do that or were they pretty helpful? Where I worked uh, when I was overseas, I always had great partnerships with, with the partners. Uh, they valued what the FBI brought. They valued the partnership. Uh, they were just as invested as we were in fighting terrorism and stopping these types of attacks. So I always had great partnerships. Uh, and that's one thing I think that's really changed uh, over the FBI uh, maybe past 20, 30 years is we just realized that we can't do anything by ourselves and we have to share. We like to say share until it's uncomfortable. Um, you know, intelligence agencies can no longer sort of hold information, yeah. right? That's, that's the recipe for failure, as you all know. Uh, and so we've really been very forward leaning over the past couple of decades of if we have information that we think could benefit another agency or a foreign partner, we're going to pass that. And we've actually, uh, and that has now morphed into even the private sector. Mm-hmm. I spent a lot of my time here meeting with uh, private sector companies because in terms of the cyber threat and the counterintelligence mm-hmm. threat, you know, we need them to find us to be a trusted partner. We want to reach out to them right away if we have any threat information for them. But we also want them to call us if they've been the victim of a breach or an intrusion. The quicker they can call us, quicker we can help uh, attribute where the attack came from and help get them back into business. That's probably a good segue to kind of bring 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 the FBI back home. You know, like sure. you, you mentioned that a little bit earlier. Let's rewind back to you know, the, the FBI relatively uh, compared to some state and local partners is, is a younger agency, uh, really. So how did the FBI come to be um, and, and kind of maybe can you walk us through a little bit of the history of the FBI up to today? Sure. Uh, you know, we started uh, really about 115 years ago as a small agency. And in fact, at first, uh, FBI agents weren't even armed. And what happened was there were a couple... Uh, incidents, uh, you know, some tragedies where FBI agents were killed, mm-hmm. uh, and it quickly became apparent that they had to be armed. The one big transformation was sort of in the 40s and 50s uh, during uh, a lot of the, the sort of the gang activity at the time and the bank robbery activity at the time was with the advent of the automobile, crimes were no longer local. Right. You think back to 150 years ago, would have been very hard to go on a multi-state crime spree. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could have done it, but it's going to take you take you a while. It's going to yeah. take you some time. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, better have a spare horse. Yeah, or and, ride the train for a long time. Or ride right? the train for a long time. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, but once the automobile became prevalent, well, then it was very qu- easy for people to commit a crime in Nebraska, drive over to Iowa, yep. drive over to Kansas, go up to Illinois, mm-hmm. and uh, and that's when I think the FBI really transformed into mm-hmm. this agency of being able to kind of bring that intelligence together uh, and go after those criminals. Or crossing state borders. And the other thing the FBI really brought, I think, was the discipline of science to law enforcement. Like things that we all take for granted now, like evidence collection, fingerprint collection. Um, you know, that's something the FBI really decided to do, you know, decades and decades ago of, you know, can we create a repository of everyone who's arrested in the country and their fingerprint? And can mm-hmm. we manage that? Mm-hmm. Um, something the FBI started a long time ago, uh, and it's actually changed even over my career, was you know, anytime you write any report in the FBI, uh, our basic report is called a 302. You know, uh, anytime you do one, when I joined, you had to underline, you had a red pencil, and you would do this report, and you'd have to underline any name of anyone referenced or any company referenced, and you'd circle the name of anyone who was like a target, someone actually of interest. And those are all be stored away. And it used to be, we called it indexing, because it used to be stored on index cards. And there's a room in D.C., think of that last scene of uh you know indiana jones with the warehouse Mm -hmm. um with 
anyone who had ever been talked to by the FBI, there's an index card there. And so if you interviewed anyone and you could reach back to this unit and they would look up that name and say, hey, that person was interviewed before by the FBI. That person was connected to a bank robbery 10 years ago. And so that sort of discipline of collecting intelligence, bringing like forensic science to law enforcement uh, was, I really think, uh, sort of a fundamental change in law enforcement that was led by the FBI uh, you know, a long time ago. Well, the, the FBI lab, I mean, I've gone through some of the Starkweather files from the late 50s here in Nebraska on that mass murder spree, and, and the sheriff in this county was, was pretty active in that investigation. But um, there, were, there were telegrams uh, to J. Edgar Hoover um, about evidence being sent back and, and uh, those kinds of things and requesting assistance from the FBI. It was really kind of fascinating. That's how they communicated. Instead of the teletype that we do now or email, they did it via telegram, and so it's yeah, yeah, pretty interesting. Pretty interesting. In that case, the Starkweather case you bring up, Sheriff, that's a great example of a case, right? Uh, Starkweather and his accomplice, like, they went on a multi-state yep. crime spree. Uh, I think at least four or five different states involved. And uh, and now it's around the time when federal aid, you know, there's a recognition that you need some sort of agency who can cross those borders and collect those cases and bring them together. Well, you think back about Bonnie and Clyde and, and some of those bank robbing groups that you talked about earlier, you know, and they had access to surplus military weapons like BARs. And that was uh, Clyde's weapon of choice was a Browning automatic rifle, mm. you know, and so they had a lot of firepower and they went all over. Uh, there was a, there was a, a raid up in Wisconsin, wasn't it? Where a bunch of uh, FBI right. agents were killed. And that's, that's right. sort of what prompted, um, I read a book where um, <clears throat> Hoover recruited Texas Rangers and um, because they could shoot good. And really, um, and, uh, you know, they didn't need training on how to handle firearms. They were, they were very, and they got them on online really quickly because of their proficiency with firearms and helping with guys like Bonnie and Clyde and those folks. You know, we have agents buried here in Omaha, uh, and over in Des Moines who were killed around that time. Mm. And, uh, you know, it's just a very violent time for law enforcement and every year, you know, it's been, Right, 75, 80 years, but every year on the anniversary of their death, you know, we all gather and continue to remember yeah. their sacrifice, mm-hmm. right? just like every law enforcement agency yeah. does. Yeah. If you want a challenging career, a career where you can make a difference in your life, your family's life, and the lives of those in your community, come and join the Lancaster County Sheriff's Office. To learn more or to apply, visit us online at www.joinlso.com. There are a, a lot of federal law enforcement agencies. Um, we, we run into the same thing. And one of the one of the things I know, the sheriff, when you go out and talk to public groups, sometimes you have to explain the difference between this is what a, a sheriff's office does versus what a police department does. Mm-hmm. Um, for our listeners that, that maybe don't know, there are a lot of agencies in the federal government, the, the DEA, the ATF, the FBI, um, Homeland Security now started after um, after 9-11. What is the the FBI's mission, and and what what is the FBI's, I guess, directive, Which, if you what will? What sets it apart from the other? Federal, yes, federal agencies? sure. That's a great question. You know, there's so many uh, very impactful federal law enforcement agencies. I think what sets the FBI apart is the breadth of our mission. Uh, we have a very broad mission. We cover a lot of territory. On the other hand, we don't do anything by ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, I used to say, except for maybe our most sophisticated or sensitive public corruption or counterintelligence investigations. But even those, we always bring in partners. 
you know, the FBI number one priority is counterterrorism. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's both international terrorism, you know, which are people here inspired by overseas movements, whether it's ISIS, Al Shabaab, Al Qaeda, and the domestic terrorism, people inspired by sort of local events in our country to commit an act of violence. Think of like uh, the Oklahoma City bombing. Um, you know, with all those crimes, we work with a lot of different partners, and we've seen it change a lot, mm-hmm. right? Uh, 20 years ago, we were seeing, you think about 9-11, a very orchestrated plot of people sent over by al-Qaeda, trained by al-Qaeda, funded by al-Qaeda to kill U.S. citizens on, on American soil. But over time, you think back, we just last year had the 10-year, I guess, commemoration of the Boston bombing. Mm-hmm. We started to see these events uh, of people who received no training from overseas, no direction from overseas, but they were inspired by terrorist groups and committed horrific attacks. You think of the Pulse nightclub shooting, uh, other events like that. So that's what we're most worried about in the terrorism side is yeah. what we call homegrown violent extremists. The number two threat that we work in the U.S. that I'd say other agencies that you name don't is counterintelligence. And we used to never talk about this, but now we talk about it quite a bit. And that's the threat posed by nation state adversaries. And there's a big four that you probably all can name yourself, but it's the People's Republic of China, Russia, North Korea, and Iran. And, and they all have different agendas, both to steal information, to destabilize the U.S., uh, and perhaps, especially in the case of the People's Republic of China, to uh, be able to inflict harm on the U.S. should there be a conflict. And just last week, the director announced uh, an operation where we detected you know, Chinese hackers uh, who had embedded themselves uh, on servers in the United States and in our critical infrastructure. We're talking about water treatment facilities, transportation hubs, mm-hmm. power grids. And the only reason they'd be there is should there be a conflict, perhaps over Taiwan or some other military conflict, to really impose uh, pain and suffering on U.S. citizens, right? Mm-hmm. There's no economic benefit to being in our wastewater uh, infrastructure. But there is a big benefit if you can deny our ability to have clean water during a time mm-hmm. of conflict. That mm-hmm. could wreak a lot of havoc. Mm-hmm, sure. Well, it brings a lot of fear, too, that somebody can get in here and do that in the United States. I think the citizens begin to think, what the heck else can they do and, and, and to harm us at that? Is China our number one concern at this point in time out of those four? Yes, from, the, from a counterintelligence perspective, uh, China's the number one concern. I mean, China has said publicly they want to be the world's number one superpower. And they've outlined a plan of how they're going to do that. It's a very public plan. And... Uh, you know, I don't think any of us want our children or our grandchildren to really live in a world where the Communist Party of China is sort of the dominant uh, governing structure or superpower in the world. Mm-hmm. And this is a threat even here for us in Nebraska, not just because we have STRATCOM and other things like that, but you even think about agriculture, mm. right? Um, you know, our number one industry here, well, what's China? China's a country that has, uh, it has 22% of the world's population, 6% of the world's arable land, which means... They can't grow enough food for their people, and that's a national security issue for them. That results in great trade for us, uh, but it also means China will do whatever they can and has, and we've seen examples of this, of stealing our agricultural technology. I mean, there's a reason why American farmers and ranchers are the most productive in the world, and it's not just because of our natural resources. It's because of the innovation that we bring to the industry, and we've had cases where people working on behalf of corporations connected to the government of China have stolen proprietary corn seed worth millions of dollars. We also see right Something you never think about. You don't think about this. Exactly right. Um, but, you know, we all know when we think about the, the critical infrastructure in our country, mm-hmm. you could argue that very few things are more fundamental than our ability to feed 
uh, ourselves, our ability to grow uh, food, our ability to grow uh, biofuel, mm-hmm. right? These are critical things to our nation's security. And now we also know that so much of farming has moved to the cloud. Uh, and many of your listeners who know who might be in agriculture know that, you know, the, you can't buy farm equipment now, like modern farm equipment that isn't connected to the cloud. Right. Uh, with precision agriculture, so much of the data is stored in the cloud. Uh, and what that means is that's uh, an opportunity for our adversaries to steal that information, steal our innovation, but also in a time of conflict, if they could shut down our ability to These grow food, yeah. feed, or biofuel during a time of conflict, it would be devastating for us. So we're very focused on that here in Nebraska and Iowa. Yeah, and it's not just it's not just planting corn, you know, anymore. It has a global impact um, when when you view it through that that lens. And fortunately, because of the work that that you and, and the FBI and your partners do, a lot of times we're able to just live in Nebraska and not think about those things. But gosh, when I heard some of that stuff, it just blew my mind that there are people out there actively trying to steal our agricultural technology um, to hurt the United States. So uh, just crazy stuff. Um, you know, the other two programs I'd highlight for you, if you're interested, is uh, our cyber program, mm-hmm. which, you know, we talked about uh, nation states like China, China, who employs more hackers than any other government combined, but also just criminal groups. And no one is immune. We've seen the cyber threats in our state grow uh, exponentially, like the threats are more severe, mm-hmm. more numerous than they ever were. And part of that is because you no longer need much expertise to do a cyber attack. You can buy the software in the dark web mm-hmm. the way you or I might buy any kind of computer program and use it. And then fourth, you know, you asked about sort of the other federal agencies. Well, one thing we work shoulder to shoulder with DEA, ATF, HSI, Secret Service, is sort of combating all the other criminal threats from gang violence to drug trafficking to bank robberies uh, to civil rights to crimes against children uh, to public corruption to human trafficking. And those we share responsibility with uh, departments like yours, with federal departments. Uh, and we all know that it's only by working together can we really hope to mitigate or combat these types of threats. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I just saw a deal on the news this morning going back to the cyber threat. Uh, there was a hospital, uh, I, and I'm, I'm thinking to myself, it'd be like Brian having two different facilities here, but they got into their system, shut them down, um, and they keep all of their records on computer. And so they... Uh, and then it said how much money was paid out last year. And it was like $8 billion was paid out to uh, f- from ransom f- for systems to get their systems unlocked, you know. And it was really phenomenal how much how much money that was generating. And that's, that's interesting on the unlock part. Now, do you guys agree with doing that? Or what is your guys' stance at the FBI for these um, on paying. Private, on private businesses? On paying the ransom? Yeah. Well, one, we all know that if no one paid any ransom ever again, these crimes would stop. So we all know that from Mm -hmm. a philosophical standpoint. But we also know businesses have to make their own decision uh, about how they're going to get up and running. And that's a business decision for them. What we can say is that we often can be of help. Uh, We can often be of help. Like we can often help them identify the malware they're facing and we can let them know we've seen other people pay a ransom to them and not get a decryption key. Uh, We've seen other people pay a ransom and this happened. The number one message we have is that if a company is hit by an intrusion or malware, they should call us. It doesn't mean they can't make whatever business decisions they need. Our job is to both help get them back into business, identify where that attack came from. Sometimes we can even, we've had success pulling the ransom back or if money is stolen, clawing that money back. But we can only do that with prompt notification. 
you know, when a cyber attack occurs, like we treat that company like a victim. We don't roll up with 10 blacked out suburbans uh, taking evidence. We, we respond the way the company wants us to respond. Uh, if they want us on site, we'll be on site. If they want us working through their legal counsel, we do that. All we want to do is attribute where that attack came from, shut down those actors, and if we can, do whatever we can to bring the money back. So I hope that answers your yeah. question. Uh, we, we would prefer no one ever pay a ransom again, but we also understand businesses are going to make those decisions, and we don't want a business to not call us because they're contemplating that. Uh, we can still work with them, uh, and often there's a lot of valuable intelligence we can provide to them in that process. Interesting. Hey, I'm Captain John Vick with the Lancaster County Sheriff's Office. When it comes to your career, don't settle for good enough. Don't settle for ordinary. We won't either. Be different, be better, be exceptional. Start your future today at joinlso.com. How about we talk about your field office specifically, and you mentioned several satellite offices, but... Um, certainly Gene Cowell doesn't do all this by himself. Um, you've got a whole team of people around you that, uh, that work at, at your field office and at those satellite offices. So what, what does that look like? How many, how many folks are at work in the, in the Omaha field office footprint? Sure. I'll tell you. So in our office, we have about 200 FBI employees and about a hundred task force officers. And you ask about sort of how we work with other agencies. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if you were to walk through the aisles of our offices, um, you wouldn't be able to tell who's an FBI agent, who's a sheriff's deputy, who's with uh, the state patrol, who's a police officer. Uh, on many different areas, whether it's gangs or drugs or crimes against children or terrorism, uh, you know, we deputize officers from different agencies, and they sit side by side with us, and we give them a top-secret clearance working on those issues. Uh, but one interesting thing about the FBI is most of us are not FBI agents. Uh, of the FBI's sort of 40,000 employees, only about a third are FBI agents, okay. like about 14,000. Okay. The middle group are what we call intelligence analysts. Mm-hmm. And what their job is both to analyze information we get on a case and say, hey, here's another subject, or this subject mm-hmm. we haven't identified, they can research and figure out, hey, we think we know who this person is and where they're located. But the other thing our analysts do is help us get ahead of the threat. Like, right now we know we're facing a fentanyl crisis, and we're working hard, all of us in this room are working right. hard to fight that. But what's next? Like, what's coming next? Where is it coming from? Yep. Right now, it's coming from the cartels getting precursors from China. How is that going to shift? How do we get ahead of that threat? With terrorism, we're focused on a certain threat now. Gangs, we're focused on a certain threat now. But our analysts help us kind of look at all of our holdings and say, hey, this is what's coming up next. Let's position ourselves to attack that threat. And then the other third uh, are anyone you might need to run a big agency, from human resources to people in our auto shop to IT professionals, to linguists Mm -hmm. who can translate evidence from different languages, Uh, forensic examiners. You know, a lot of the evidence we see is like your department is digital now, Mm -hmm. and we need experts who can download that, exploit that. So really there's a job for, I say this, there's a job for almost anyone at the FBI if they're interested, whether it's entry level, uh, whether it's to become an agent. Uh, The average age to start as an agent is actually about 30. Mm. Wow. Uh, So for almost everyone... You know, I was a prosecutor before, but for almost everyone, it's a second career. They were in the military. Uh, many people have PhDs in different specialties. They were accountants. They were teachers. They were police officers. Um, many different backgrounds come in, but usually people have done something else first before they come in. So if I'm listening to this at home, and whether I want to be an agent, 
um, on the, you know, hostage rescue team, or I want to be, you know, the, somebody that works in HR, how can I learn about career opportunities at the FBI? Great question. Uh, everything's online now. Yep. Uh, just go to fbijobs.gov and I have all the answers of different career tracks, how you can apply. Uh, some jobs are posted regionally. You can apply to actually, if you want to be a professional uh, support position, you can apply for that office. Other jobs, such as our agents' jobs and our intelligence analysts, you apply for the position, don't know where you'll be sent after the academy. So that, that's a good question, too, because, um, you know, if, if somebody's listening and says, well, you know, I'd love to work for the FBI. They have an office here in Lincoln, but... I just I don't know if I want to move to Seattle, Washington. Is that is that an option, or, or do you have positions that are available locally, or is it like you said, some it depends on the job, maybe? We we always are hiring. Okay. Uh, right now, we have open positions for jobs as diverse as multimedia specialists, information technology, uh, operation support technicians. These are people with sort of entry level jobs mm-hmm. that help support investigations on the squad level. Mm-hmm. So we always have postings, even here in Nebraska and Iowa. Okay. Um, and as does almost every field office. Yeah, okay. So some jobs you can apply locally. Other jobs, as I said, like it's more of a national posting. Yep. And you can express a preference of where you might go, but you don't actually know. One of, one of the know, things. You know, I know one of the guys in the FBI office is from Roca. Yeah. And um, uh, one of the deputies here, his wife drove his school bus when he went to Norris. And he was, I think his first posting was in Chicago. That's and right. Then, then he was able to come back to the uh, Omaha field office. And so, yeah, it's uh, not always something where you have to move across the country forever. Um, forever. It, yeah, well, yeah. Exactly. I used to hear, and maybe I'm misheard, but like usually when you start, you have to go to one of the big eight in your career as an agent. Is that, is that true? No, it's what you're saying. is very interesting. It used to be that it, you either had to start at one of our sort of top 10, top 15 offices, or if not, after your first three years, you'd rotate to one of those offices. Mm. That did happen for a while. Uh, that stopped. I would say that hasn't been done in like 10 or 12 years. Uh, now, if you get sent to an office as an agent and you like it there, uh, for the most part, you can stay. I moved around a bit, but they were all moves that you know, my family and I chose to get a different career opportunity. Uh, so for our family, we would choose to move. But uh, Sheriff, as you say, it's very surprising. If you talk to a lot of the agents here in our office, this is either a place they got sent to out of the academy mm-hmm. and fell in love with and stayed, mm-hmm. or they got sent somewhere else and fought to get back. And they worked their way back. Yeah. And that's even true. Uh, you might be surprised, even out in our sort of smaller resident agencies in North Platte, Grand Island, mm-hmm. uh, you know, throughout Iowa. There's there's lists of people who want yeah. to go there. Dave, was it Dave Berlin was an agent out in, in Grand Island? And that's where he was from. You know, that was uh, yeah. hometown. You know, there's yeah. another. That's right. We were working a homicide, and it's been several years ago, but we went up to Pine Ridge Reservation. And I was absolutely shocked that an FBI agent was there and working, and I did not realize the amount of work you guys do on the reservations, on, on the violent crime portion of it. So that was an absolute shock to me because I did not know that. Yeah, it's so interesting. It's true. Um, you know, a lot of our work, you know, it's statutorily on, on uh, Native American reservations uh, is any felony is a federal offense, and the FBI is often the lead agency on those. So we have agents who, even in our office, we have agents in our Sioux City RA uh, who all they do is focus on crimes uh, on the reservations. And um, it's a very difficult place to work, some horrific crimes, but it's a really vital role we play. And I remember when I was an agent in New York City, 
and I was doing sort of, I guess I would say like organized crime in the Bronx, you know, people selling drugs or guns or doing fraud. And then uh, I, I did a deployment to Iraq and my partner there was an agent, I think from Wisconsin in a small RA who did Indian country. You know, he had just done a big saddle theft case. And so that's what's so interesting about the bureau is um, I was coming from a thousand person office and he was coming from sort of a three person office, mm-hmm. uh, but same training, same background. You know, we spoke the same uh, FBI language, but totally different experiences. Yeah. yeah. One of the, you, you mentioned the analysts um, when I was out in Quantico for the national Academy, we're, we're using the same classrooms and hallways that the FBI agents and analysts were using out there. And I don't know how long ago they did this, but it, it makes a lot of sense. They're actually pairing up the analysts and the, and the new special agents in training because they wanted to model that after their squads and their field offices. So they have a lot of their training that actually overlaps. Um, and it, you know, it'd be interesting to see how something like that would, would work here. We've got a lot of variety with civilian support staff. You know, but. for the listeners who may not know about the FBI National Academy, uh, since 1935, uh, J. Edgar Hoover wisely um, started a National Police Academy, and it, be, it morphed into the, the FBI National Academy, and we all have attended that. And um, it, it is is probably, I think, if you talk to a lot of NA grads, it's the best experience of their professional life. And, um, yeah, it really helps us understand the FBI and vice versa. And, um, yeah, it was just a, a really neat concept. Well, the people you meet, you, you never have another opportunity to meet that many right. people in yeah. one spot and talk and do all those things. It's, yeah, it was, um, and it's the largest, um, professional organization, the alumni, the FBI National Academy Associates is the largest law enforcement alumni association. Um, and you know, if you need something in, in New York City, if you know somebody that you went to the NA with, it's a whole lot easier getting stuff done than calling. Yeah, the, I've the even gone onto the computer, found out, found yep. an, you know, yep. a graduate and, and cold called them and said, hey, here I am. And they've been over yep. backwards for you to get yep. you know, the help you need. That was, Gene, one of the biggest takeaways for me from Quantico was just what you said earlier. I, I had this picture of the FBI in my mind that it was completely wrong, by the way. Um, that, uh, you know, that you guys work all your own cases, you know, you roll up there, like you said, in the black suburban, all right, step aside, state and locals, we've got this. Kind of like a diehard. Yeah. Sorry. But it's really, it's really the opposite. I mean, um, most of the time, I mean, I, I think you guys are working hand in hand with us on, on trying to figure out how, how we can work together to solve something. What's well, like our recent mis- missing person case. You know, we get a call from the local uh, resident agency here and said, how can we help you? Yeah. And that was, you know. Yeah. I mean, the first thing out of their mouth is we don't want to take over, but we would like to help. And you yeah. know, you're dumb not to have another set of eyes looking at a case yep. and going over it with you. And, and some of the national assets that yes. the FBI has and, and you know, you know laboratory assets, those kinds of things are really helpful that we may not have, you know, we don't have access to locally. So it's really, yeah, it is very helpful. Well, I'm glad to hear that. You know, a big role we play, and I don't talk about it in one of our programs, but as you said, we spend a lot of time helping with violations that there's no federal violation. But if I see something going on in your territory, if it's an active shooter event or significant homicide, we will always call and say, what do you need? And we'll do whatever we can to help give you any evidence we collect, and then move on. We know there will never be a federal case. This summer, there was a, a hostage situation out in Garing in Scott's Bluff. Yeah. Yes. And mm-hmm. that was a situation, uh, 
soon as we heard what was developing, you know, I called the sheriff, uh, Sheriff Oberman out there, and uh, I said, you know, what do you need? And do you need our SWAT team? Do you need our resources? And we ended up bringing our SWAT team and our hostage rescue team. Out of Quantico. Out of Quantico. They flew out. We, uh, after about 20 hours, helped resolve the situation. Hostages were, uh, were freed, and the person was taken into custody, and then we left. You know, we weren't, we didn't take the case. It was the opposite. We handed everything we had over to uh, our local partners and moved on. So that's a big role we play is just offering help. Uh, well, even, you know, uh, the mass shooting in Vegas with Jason mm-hmm. Aldean and all that. Could you imagine trying to, you know, that agency, how big it is, but they were overwhelmed at the point and had to call you guys in to come help on doing the evidence collection. I mean, because crime doesn't stop. You know, they're still yeah. having to do all the other things that mm-hmm. they knew, and now they have this major, major crime scene and event going on. And, yeah, I, I couldn't imagine not having you guys come in and being a part of that. You know, I've been part of some active shooter events in my career where, you know, part of what we did is we brought in our whole evidence uh, response team, and we spent 10 days going through the scene. All we're doing is collecting evidence to turn over to the sheriff's department we're working with, but that frees them up to continue with the investigation, fight other crime, do what they need to do, and we can devote resources for 10 days doing everything we need to to collect the scene and hand it all over. Well, that and the expertise you have. You know, a lot of times, a lot of these agencies don't get a lot of reps in what they're doing, and this is not the time to be game day the first day you're playing, and so that's another huge help that just the plain experience you guys have and can bring in. That's a great point. We're really just fortunate when we talked about the National Academy um, that, that, you know, those of us that are sitting here have been through, but it doesn't stop there. Um, we're fortunate right. that we've got the National Academy Associates. We have ongoing training um, with you and, and some of your agents uh, throughout the year and uh, different events. And I know you, I don't know how many miles you put on your car, but I see you popping up in, you know, Scott's Bluff, in Cedar Rapids, I mean, all over the, the Omaha field office footprint. So um, it, yeah, it's you a thousand mile wide jurisdiction, don't you? We do. I think it's uh, right up there from, if you go from Scott's Bluff all the way out to Cedar Rapids yeah. in Iowa. But I'll tell you, it's it's a beautiful territory, and it's actually the greatest joy of my job is just driving around, talking to chiefs, talking to sheriffs, finding out what's happening in that area, seeing how we can help. Uh, you know, we never want that first introduction to be at the scene of a crisis. Like, I always want, it's always better if we've met before. Mm-hmm. And not just law enforcement. You know, the greater degree that commu- the community finds us to be a trusted partner, uh, the, the greater degree, like, they may never, someone... You know, out in western Nebraska, they might never Google the FBI to find our number and say, hey, I think the FBI should know about that. But if they've met me or if they heard me speak at a Rotary Club or if, they, if, or if the local chief or sheriff there had met me, they might say, you know, maybe give Gene a call. Here's his number. Here's his card. Mm-hmm. And we find that's a huge, huge force multiplier hmm. for us. Yeah. So well, now I'm going to bring up – you guys have – like law enforcement, all and like us, if taking a couple of black eyes. Yeah, uh, we, of we're Lake glad West. you. We're glad <laughs> yeah. you finally joined sure. the party. Yeah. Sure, <laughs> you're always the ones standing on the outside sure. watching us get beat up, and then all of a sudden that changed a little bit. How how is that? How has the FBI dealt with that? I mean, I'm, you probably hear about it locally when you talk to other groups. Sure, you know it's interesting. When I joined the FBI as an agent, people didn't have much opinion about the FBI. If I knocked in a door, either they were. Uh, interested to see us and thought it was cool, or if they were a criminal, they didn't want us there. And that was sort of it. And now we have the dynamic where there's a lot of people, as you've said, we might knock on a door and they have an opinion about the FBI. They have a political opinion about the FBI. So all I can say is, um, 
you know, the real work of the FBI, what we're doing, it's sort of the work we're doing here, right, in Nebraska and Iowa, is every day working with our partners to catch child predators, to stop the flow of fentanyl into our state, uh, to identify terrorists, to go after large-scale fraudsters, to stop human trafficking. And that's really what we're doing. And as we've already talked about, you know, most of the people in our office here, they're either from here or they fought to get here or they were sent here and wanted to stay. So mm-hmm. we're part of the community. Uh, and that's really the core work of what we do. And I will tell you, from my personal experience, I mean, the FBI is a remarkably unpolitical organization. And I've been in almost 20 years. And this is a true statement. I have never been part of a conversation in work uh, where anyone discussed sort of their political preferences. I mean, I've never, it just would be a completely foreign thing in the FBI to be in the break room or at the vending machine or at lunch with your, your colleagues and people start talking about like sort of like who they're voting for, right? Or what party they're a member of. So I've been very impressed throughout my career and every office I've been in to be part of this very, very unpolitical agency who just wants to follow the evidence where it lies. Doesn't matter who the target is, uh, just is going to follow the evidence and, and identify sort of the crimes as they occur. So, but yeah, we are taking some hits right now. That's okay. It's more, I worry more about law enforcement in general. I mean, right now there's, uh, a, you know, we're seeing throughout the country, you know, people who have come out pretty strongly against law enforcement, not particular individual law enforcement officers who may have done something wrong or committed a crime. We have to hold those accountable. But they, they're coming out against law enforcement in general. And to me, that, you know, it's a bad trend. And it's, a, you know, people need to trust law enforcement. Um, you know, the analogy I heard is, listen, the, in the FBI, like, we arrest doctors. There's doctors who commit crimes, uh, whether fraud, horrifically sometimes abuse, and we'll arrest them. But it doesn't mean that if you have a heart attack, you're not going to call a doctor. If you need stitches, you're still going to call a doctor, right? right? The whole profession is still an honorable one. And law enforcement, I think, is one of the most honorable careers anyone could do. Um, so I don't worry so much about the FBI. We'll be fine. You know, mm-hmm. we'll, we're just going to keep our head down and do our job. But uh, I do want, you know, the entire country to, like, come back and support law enforcement the way we have in the past. Uh, identify where we can be better. Like, if we made mistakes or there's been abuses, let's definitely stop those and hold yep. people accountable. We all agree on that. But, uh, yes, you're right. The FBI sort of got a lot of heat the past few years. And we'll, we'll put our head down. We'll work through it and just show people the kind of work we're doing. On a local level, uh, and I hope by doing that and working with sort of all of our partners, we can sort of rebuild the brand of the FBI and law enforcement in general. Well, the you hard thing is that sometimes you just plain can't defend yourself because you can't say anything, and that that's always been the the hardest thing for us yeah. here is we can't talk. And I, one of the things I've always been proud of our profession is. If one of us does screw up and we find out about it, we're the first ones to jump on it and do what's right and make the arrest most of the time. And and I don't think people realize the last thing we want is a bad apple going around doing things because, again, it makes us all look bad. I think that's such a good point. I don't know if people always realize that, but if we were, if we identify an agent breaking the law or if you identify, you know, a deputy breaking the law, like people will line up to do that investigation. Yep. I mean – People want to go after that person in the agency. Uh, it won't be a problem finding people to investigate that case. Yeah. Uh, our, our integrity is everything. And if that's we, all you got. Yeah, it's all we've got. And, uh, yeah, and it's funny, interesting because I'll, I go to those Rotary Club, you know, luncheons and sure. different groups. And, and, and sometimes I'll get asked, well, how's, your, how's your relationship with the FBI? You know what? We work very well with the FBI locally. I don't have any kind of contact with Director Ray, and I don't know what's going on there, but... I know that our local FBI field office is great to work with, and it's a great resource. And so 
yeah, it's uh, it's one of those questions that come up pretty frequently. Well, yeah. s- speaking of your office, um, what what's new at, at FBI Omaha? Any any big projects or changes or, or things uh, things that are going on just locally in Omaha? We know recently we had, and you know, your department helped us with this, but a few weeks ago we had a, a large scale arrest operation targeting. Mm-hmm like prolific traffickers, mostly of methamphetamine, but also fentanyl in our territory. Mm-hmm. Uh, and over the course of the investigation, we indicted 55 people. But last week during that one-day operation, we all got up early in the morning. I know your folks did as well. And we arrested, I think, about 30 people. So that's mm-hmm. something we're always focused on. Uh, it's the threat from fentanyl. You know, uh, it's a crisis like we haven't seen before. And uh, every law enforcement agency is seeing this. You know, it's, it's parents, mothers, uh, fathers, sons, daughters who are being you know, uh, both killed or overdosing on this drug. We continue to focus on the threats we talked about from China, always focus on the threat from counterterrorism, uh, and then just working to keep our community safe. I mean, the FBI's mission in Omaha is the same as it is everywhere, protect the American people and uphold the Constitution. And we do that every day. And the way we do that is really by working with, you know, our state, local, and federal partners. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we uh, we can't can't thank you enough. Uh, well, i, I got to have a question. Go ahead. What is it like having to investigate presidents of the United States as an agency and doing all those different things and their family members? I mean, that's probably why you've gotten a little bit of a black eye. I mean, that was, that's what has transpired. What is that like as an agency, and what do you know about those different things? Well, sure. And I haven't been part of any of those investigations, and I, of course, can't speak by any pending investigations. But I will say is if you actually look at the FBI's record, whether the past few years, five years, ten years, you'll see cases that have been made against people across the political spectrum. Mm-hmm. Uh, not everything gets the same level of attention in the media, but if you actually research it, you'll see cases have been made against political figures, uh, leaders from both sides of the political spectrum. And what I know about the agents that I've met with in the FBI and that I work with every day is they are just going to follow the evidence where it leads. Uh, and then, you know, the ultimate prosecutorial decision goes to the prosecutors, but they will follow the evidence where it leads regardless of the party, regardless of their personal views of what that person they're investigating uh, believes. And I've been very impressed with the FBI doing that. And I think if you actually look at the record of these investigations, if you actually read the file, read the record, I think the American public would be very impressed with sort of the, the diligence and adherence to policy that, that agents have followed and just following the facts wherever they lead. I, you know, and I, I have people ask me similar, similar questions, you know, cause I, well, you went to, you went to Quantico. I mean, what, are they are they like we hear about on TV? And I, I, I say the same thing. It's like I, I can't say I, I've never met everybody in the FBI, but I can tell you about the people that I know that work for the FBI. And they're pretty normal people, <laughs> just just like other people that I work with. And uh, your office has been fantastic to work with. Um, really solid group of people, like you said, just just dedicated to that mission to upholding the Constitution, protecting the American people. And uh, we're we're just we're proud to stand shoulder to shoulder with you, and and uh, just appreciate the partnership. Uh, thank you. Same here. That brings us to the end of our episode of the 902 podcast today. Big thank you to Special Agent in Charge Gene Cowell and the entire Omaha field office of the FBI. And I want to thank them for their ongoing partnership with the Lancaster County Sheriff's Office, but also just taking time out of their busy schedules to come and visit with us today. If you're interested in career opportunities with the FBI in Omaha or across the globe, check out FBIjobs.gov. 
Likewise, if you're interested in career opportunities with the Lancaster County Sheriff's Office, we've got information available for you at www.joinlso.com. Be sure to subscribe to the 902 Podcast on Spotify, Apple, now YouTube as well, or wherever else you enjoy listening to podcasts to catch all of our episodes. And you can also find us on social media at LSO Nebraska across Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, X, anywhere else on social media. And lastly, send us an email if you've got feedback or comments, questions, lso at lancaster.ne.gov. We hope to catch you on our next episode of the 902 Podcast. Take care.